0: Welcome to another podcast episode of Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. Our conversation today is with partners Carista Luminaire and Lion Goodman, and it focuses on relationships and healing trauma. Lion Goodman likes the title subconscious pattern detective. He's a belief therapist and helps people heal core wounds, delete old programming from the human operating system, and clear away limitations, resistance, and blocks from the psyche. When you remove limiting beliefs, what emerges is your power as creator of your own life. You can then easily and naturally create the great and beautiful life you deserve. Carista Luminaire integrates the recent research in the Neuroscience of Relationship and Attachment into her comprehensive understanding about the impact of childhood developmental trauma on identity formation, beliefs, and behaviors. After four years of applying this cultivated wisdom into her personal and professional life, Carista is confident a person can rewire their self-identity to be an expression of their true nature if they do the inner work with guidance
1: they trust.
0: Hi, Lion!
1: Hi, right. it's so great to be back, Janine.
0: Yes, I'm really happy to have you back again. And hello, for the first time, Carista. Hello there. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on. I'm really looking forward to this because um, I think, uh, well, I would say probably 99% of our growth happens through relationships, so... Yes, that is true.
1: (laughs) You can do a lot of growing in a cave in the mountains, but then you come out and you have to deal with people. (laughs) Darn.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. Now, Lion, you've been on the podcast twice before, um, and I will have links on the the podcast webpage um, to your other uh, episodes if people would like to uh, access them. And you've shared your work on beliefs. But today we're going to talk about healing trauma. And it's a rather large topic. So I'm going to let you and Carista set the agenda for the areas that you would like to share with our listeners today, the things that you think are most important. And Carista, I'd like to start with you since you haven't been on before. And by the way, I love your name. (laughs) Uh, I haven't, I, this is the, you're the first Carista I've met and I really like it. So perhaps you could share with our listeners how this came to be an important topic for you. And then we will weave the two of you together.
2: Okay. Well, I think I heard you say that I, by maybe a little typo that it's been four years. It's been 40 years. I began. Oh, 40. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm only saying because I have to I have to clarify that since I'm I'm about to share with you, it all began this understanding of the power of attachment on developmental trauma when I was 21 Mm -hmm. I'm now 64 and I was a budding uh just out of Harvard psychology major traditional background education and I was blessed to be be being a postgraduate program and I had an epiphany one day as just and I thought oh my god here are all these adults spending their adult years healing themselves from childhood trauma and Uh, What an inefficient use of one's life to have to live 18, 20 years and then spend another 20, 30, 40 years healing from what happened in childhood. (laughs) And that began an inspiration to try to understand what potential parents could do to prepare for parenthood before a child came into their life and was exposed to a lot of their own uh, unconscious, uh, subconscious conditioning. Um, this is before the attachment research was out there in a mainstream way. And I uh, spent twenty years through a master's thesis and a doctoral dissertation, developing an understanding of of what potential parents could do to prepare for parenthood to to really optimize the development of the child from conception onwards as one of the first prenatal psychologists way back in the eighties before any of this was hip and holistic was not even known. And, Mm -hmm. um, authenticity wasn't, wasn't really even a, a buzzword. And I became very fascinated with the true nature of, of, of optimizing that from the beginning of life. And I wrote a book called parenting begins before conception. And then I had a major parenting center. And so the attachment model was, was deeply in my path, uh, one of the pioneers in preconception, prenatal bonding, and you know, even before birth, that attachment begins. Mm-hmm. And so that's been just in my marrow, really, in terms of my own process of preparing for parenthood with my child, as well as the Parenting Center and, and thousands of clients who I've worked with since 1982, actually. And um, so it was really more of a prevention, prevent trauma, Mm -hmm. orientation and then after 20 years of focusing on that and developing lots of work in that regard started to work with adults and parents preparing for parenthood who actually did have a lot of trauma particularly developmental trauma we're talking about and a lot of new research and studies came out and showing how early attachment with each primary attachment figure even step parents and adoptive parents and grandparents would impact adult intimacy dynamics. So I've been spending the last two decades developing and understanding how to heal as adults, our childhood trauma, particularly through the attachment
0: lens. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, um, I just wrote down uh, a term that I thought it might be nice to, uh, 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 (laughs) <laughs> I'm having a Spoiler. senior, yes. Well, <laughs> a senior moment already. Geez, it's too early yeah. in the in the conversation <laughs> to have a senior moment. But uh, developmental trauma—if you could yeah. explain what that is—well,
2: a child, every child, every ego for optimal uh, identity formation and development needs certain conditions for different stages of life. So there's a handful of models. I particularly follow the a lot of the attachment model where there's four attachment styles and the child's either securely attached to at least one primary uh attachment figure parent or caregiver optimally mother and uh, father if they're lucky they're securely attached which we can define or they're insecurely attached and often can be traumatically attached if the parent's scary, alcoholism, abuse, mm-hmm. unpredictable. So that's one, one distinction. And then there's another distinction uh, based on Lowen and, and, and Larry Heller's work. Uh, he's kind of taken it to another level, which talks about five major stages of developmental trauma, such as the first one, the child's ability to trust uh, that it can exist as itself, and that's the first months. And then uh, need attunement is the second developmental need. And if you had a parent that wasn't attuned to your needs, um, then – oh, no, the first, sorry, the first one's connection, whether I have a dependable connection, that's the attachment. The okay. second one is whether the parent or primary caregivers are attuned to my needs or not, which a lot of people had parents that had no clue what their needs were and how to care for them. The third mm-hmm. one is trust, whether I can trust this person, depend on them to be there when i need them uh the fourth one is autonomy that's more the teen developmental trauma so if the parents didn't support individuation you can be different from me your true nature is different than mine and i'm your cheerleader and will guide you that's the fourth one the autonomy needs and the fifth one is when the sexuality blossoms in the teenhood does the child uh have the experience and are they guided that sexuality and emotional heart intimacy are optimal for you know intimacy fulfillment rather mm-hmm. than sex as you know objectification so those are all the childs depending on the parents primary care, caregiver's culture to be able to give them optimal guidelines and experiences to develop those five stages of development Mm -hmm. and if they don't get that then they'll often not develop in their ability to connect to people to be attuned to their own needs and others to trust people to be autonomous or to
1: really have their sex and heart connected Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, most people when they think of trauma they think of what's now referred to as shock trauma or incidental trauma something happened you got beat up uh, you were sexually abused Mm -hmm. you were in an accident, PTSD from war, and so that's distinguished from developmental trauma, which are the things that happen to you as a child, which screw you up as an adult. Relationally, <laughs> relational right. trauma versus the acute incident, like Lion's saying.
0: Okay, that's an important distinction. That's that's good. Thank you. Go ahead, Lion.
1: Sorry. Uh, there was a study done by Kaiser and the Center for Disease Control um, called the ACE Study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And uh, they studied 75,000 people and, the, and how many cases or incidents of trauma a child had and how their health developed over the years, over the decades. Mm-hmm. And mm. they found that there was a huge percentage of the population that had one or more traumas and a significant part of the population that had four or more different kinds of trauma in their childhood. So we really live in a society of traumatized people. And so this work in trauma, trauma healing is so important right now because there's a lot of wounded warriors out there, not just people who have been in war, but people who have been in the war of the family.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and that makes sense to me because I mean, the, I, it's my sense anyway, that the majority of people are just kind of flying by the seat of their pants when it comes to raising children. Yes. That's why the, My book, Parenting Begins Before Conception,
2: is that to really inspire prospective parents or new parents that knowing what love is and what love isn't, as well as adults who keep choosing partners where they, you know, feel chronically insecure or threatened is really a a missing wisdom for most people. You know, love is very, very simple when you look at the, the neuroscience and the attachment, it can be defined very simply. Uh, if You'd like us to do that? Yes, please. So we, we have three or four ways to share this, um, what love is and what it isn't. I'll, I'll explain it through the attachment styles. People can take our, our love style profile quiz to really see where they lie in these distinctions. And then uh, we'll talk about the the brain, how the brain knows whether it's feeling love or not, because when we're triggered, we're not usually not feeling safe and not feeling love. And um, that might give people a chance to really discern whether any particular relationship they're reflecting on is really healthy love or, you know, some form of insecure attachment or or traumatic attachment.
0: Yes. And I'd like to let the listeners know that there will be a link to that, uh, that quiz uh, on the website. Mm -hmm. Great so i'm going to simplify here we call um
2: the the research that came out in the 50s the attachment research a lot of people can look at it online uh we've kind of simplified made it more practical we call it the four love styles it's really the four attachment styles so if you hear me say attachment it's synonymous to love style
0: okay
2: so there's three love st- four love styles one's called secure attachment secure love style and then the other three are insecure love styles Mm -hmm. i'll just mention them insecure anxious love style insecure avoidant love style and traumatic love style so secure attachment otherwise known as feeling loved is basically the feeling that one has is with. In relationship with another, because relationship is a two-party system, this Mm -hmm. isn't self-love, just with me, myself, this is being with someone else, the general feeling with you when I feel love and secure is I I feel safe. Uh I trust you're here for me, you love me, I love you. There's a mutual sensitivity, mutual caring, and we're each other's priority to keep each other feeling safe and secure. So the feelings are generally... You know, I'm feeling loved and peaceful, harmonious. You know, those good feelings, mm-hmm. tr- trust and being honored. And a lot of people say, I love to be cherished and even adored. And it's just this feeling of being welcomed. It's not, it doesn't have to be so in, glamorous as adored. It's just, I feel good. I feel myself. I can rest with you. I don't feel threatened with you. And we, we soothe each other's distress when we, especially when we cause it. And we empower each other's true self, and and you're just my go-to person. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what, what that feeling is. We we have a few more distinctions, line You might want to share kind of what love what love is. And... Would you
0: Would you say too, like it, it's like you can really count on each other? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yep. You're my You're my rock. You're my mm-hmm. oasis in the desert of
1: life. Right. If you think about uh, what an infant needs, they need to be held and calmed and changed and fed and nurtured, right? Mm-hmm. And so if any of those major things are missing, then there's going to be a developmental issue going on. And the problem is, is that whatever we're experiencing as children, whatever we see our parents doing to each other and doing to us, we think that's what love is. Mm-hmm. So if there's uh, abuse, that's what love is. If there's fighting, that's what love is. If there's arguing, that's what love is. And we then, as we become adults, we go looking for what for love, right? Mm-hmm. But using a model from our family system, that's really not love. And so we make the distinction between what love is and what love isn't. And it's pretty obvious when you say it, but a lot of people don't understand This simple distinction. Mm -hmm. So, love is warm. It's it's peaceful. It's protective. It's compassionate. It's predictable. It's safe, and it's forgiving. Okay, those are some of the qualities. We have a long list of them. Mm -hmm. And what love isn't are the opposites. Love isn't cold. It's not intellectual. It's not warlike or defensive. It's not judging or critical. It's not dangerous. It's not insecure. It's not begrudging. Right. So. Once you have that distinction, then you can know whether love is actually happening or whether you're in one of the old programs from your childhood, which you picked up just because that's what was happening.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so if we were to simplify what secure love style, secure love feels like, it feels like a positive connection where the sense that being in relationship with you, other, parent, lover, sibling, colleague is is i just feel the threat feels really low and i feel like i can just rest with my open heart now can we go to the next insecure anxious Mm -hmm. that's okay yeah so the insecure anxious love style when we feel that the other partner really um gives us a sense that they're going to ban us that they don't care about us the kind of the beliefs are you don't care about me. You don't want connection. I'm not important to you. I don't know if I matter to you. Um, you know, I just, I don't trust you love me and it creates an anxiety and that often will manifest in the behaviors. They're more the ones that when, so when we feel threatened and we go into insecurity, we don't have the secure love. The one who goes into insecure, anxious, the anxiety is very aggravating and there's a preoccupation and they're often their behavior is when I lose this connection with you, I get anxious and I usually pursue the need to have this anxiety resolved as soon as possible because I'm feeling frustrated and lonely and needy and I get angry and And so they often manifest as the ones who complain and judge and attack and yell. They're the escalators. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you feel like when you feel you, any listener feel insecure, you have a tendency to kind of aggress and where are you going and never feel like you can feel peaceful until that disconnection, Mm -hmm. that lack of positive connection is resolved. You're usually in the insecure, anxious
0: strategy. The insecure avoidant, let me just when, ask you a question about insecure, anxious first. Sure. Uh, Cause what, and, and I may be wrong here. So um, would it, the insecure anxious person tend to break off a relationship uh, before, like in fear that the other person would do that. And so they, they will break it off first. Possibly that usually um, would, it depends, you know,
2: that's that, that's a choice it's like i'm so afraid of being abandoned mm-hmm. that i that i'm going to abandon first so i don't have to feel and i feel like i'm in some powerful position to of uh, you know to be the one to abandon you first so i don't have to feel being abandoned because that's their right. greatest fear With the insecure avoidant the other one when triggered we're talking about okay when you know so we often talk about the fight or flight center when we're feeling threatened the brain the midsection of the brain line can talk about in a minute the fight is like is the insecure anxious. I'm going to fight until I get resolution. The flight by I'm out of here is the insecure avoidant, just like the name. I am out of here. As soon as we get in conflict, see you later. You know, I don't need anyone. I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I can't get it right. I feel hopeless. Like I'll take care of it myself because I don't trust anyone really cares for my feelings or needs because that's what happened in childhood. When I put out a feeling of need, I was ignored. So I ignore my own needs. Don't even know them because no one really taught me how to care for them. And when you have a need, you other person, especially if you're anxious, oh, my God, you're flooding me and I'm out of here. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to shut down. Usually they kind of are the insecure avoidant is more suppressing their feelings, avoiding conflict. They disappear just like the name because they're fearing rejection, whereas the insecure anxious is more abandonment. They're kind of kissing cousins, but it's a feeling like, you know, I you can just shun me. So they shun first. They're usually more cold and they they're numb. They're they're kind of going to the deep freeze, right? And they're like, "See you later. Shut the door. I'm out of here. I don't need anyone." Whereas the insecure anxious is like knocking at the door. Pay attention to me. Don't go anywhere. And they're kind of hot. Whereas the insecure avoidant is cold.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
2: last the last insecure style, the insecure traumatic, it's a more refined um insecure behavior usually one has insecure anxious or insecure avoidant the ones just discussed as the baseline and then the traumatic is when it's kind of an extra conditioning and wiring usually from childhood where one or both parents or caregivers were really scary most of the time and the child never feels safe doesn't feel like they can control anything, can't hide from it. I'm in danger with you. I'm going to be punished. I don't know what I did wrong. And the why is it called traumatic? Because it's, for those of you who might have this, how do you know you might have it? It's when you get triggered, you either go into the anxious, kind of the escalated, or you go into the avoidant, and then you you get kind of this complicated, disassociated feeling that if you really look at what's going on, you're overreacting, to what's really happening because you've got a lot of scar tissue. Mm-hmm. It's this feeling of just like I am so unsafe with this person. I and the nervous system literally gets disorganized and there's this kind of people talk about going into a trance, they kind of they're they might go into anxiety in a ridiculously inflamed way or they might go into avoidance and disappear for a week. This kind of paralyzed, collapsed, frozen overreaction. And the general feeling is terror threat This person, this other person, you, other person, are terrifying me, threatening me, you know, uh, frightening me. I'm uncertain and I can't function. And that's more the traumatic spectrum. And, you know, they the research says so it, secure attachment is 80 plus percent of the time you're feeling secure. Four out of five in, in, interactions you're feeling, you know, calm. Everyone's got bad moods. You know, they get in fights. They have other things playing at them, PMS, XYZ, the general feeling is, you know, I feel safe and secure with you. The general insecure, anxious, insecure avoidant is when I trigger a lot of the time, I'm, you know, either disappearing on you into my avoidance or escalating into my anxiety. And the traumatic is like, the whole relationship experience just feels overwhelming whenever I get
0: triggered. Mm -hmm. Now, I can imagine that with the traumatic, that it could be a combination of uh, just the way the person's responding to the other person, but also if they have grown up in abuse, they might be attracted to another part to a partner who's abusive.
1: It, it's in our talks about beliefs, I talked about how our beliefs, our core paradigms, a function like filters in front of our eyes, mm-hmm. and a person who is in, runs traumatized in that spectrum. They're looking through their trauma at whatever's happening, like a filter. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And this is why uh, they can be so easily triggered, and it seems unreasonable. Like I say, please pass the mayonnaise, and you say, "What's wrong with you? You're talking just like my father." You know, so that overreaction is coming through that filter of I, I'm insecure, I'm I've been abused, I'm not happy, anything bad could happen at any moment. So these are are all brain responses. Um, most people know about the amygdala. When I studied it back in the 70s, nobody knew what the heck it was mm, today. Mm-hmm. No. So we, we call it the smoke detector and the fire alarm. And basically, there's two of them about an inch inside each temple. And they're part of the limbic system. Okay. And the limbic system is our emotional brain. Mm-hmm. And that sits on top of our primitive brain down at the brainstem. And that's we call that the warring brain. And what happens with the amygdala is it's, it functions as a smoke detector. It's always looking for any threat. And if it sees a threat, if it sees smoke, it starts going, uh-oh, something could be wrong. Something could be wrong. Look out. There might be fire. There might be fire. And so you go on alert. Mm-hmm. And then if you if something happens that you see fire, now it goes into fire alarm. Get out. Get out. Get out. Or es- escalate. 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 So um, what we're trying to do in our teaching is to teach people how to stay out of the yellow and red of the smoke alarm and fire alarm and stay in the green of security. And we just use the stoplight Mm -hmm. uh, as an analogy. Mm -hmm. And also if we can get into our frontal lobes, our cortex, then we can find empathy and appreciation and mutuality and reciprocity and that's where we can maximize mutual happiness as soon as something happens to trigger us we're suddenly dropped down into the limbic system and the amygdala firing off and then the cortex our higher functions basically shut off we are in emergency fight or flight fold or freeze mode and and it, we don't have time to think; we just have to react.
2: our rational sense goes out the window. That's why we get in these vicious processing cycles. Mm-hmm. Exactly,
1: and this is why trying to talk to someone who's emotionally upset never works. All right,
2: unless you have the, unless the other person's in their prefrontal lobes, not in the in the in the fight or flight response, and they can stay open and not get triggered when you're co, you have two people who are co-triggered it's that's when you know you've you've got kind of these anti-relational
1: non-relational reactions of being right and withdrawing and all of that and that can happen so easily so someone gets upset one partner gets upset the other person sees the upset look on their face and goes what's wrong and then the other person says nothing's wrong and say yes there is and now they're now that that starts the the battle Mm -hmm. of Who's right? Because once you're in the warring brain, you're all about being right or attacking or controlling or defending, and it's very hard to climb out of that. So we teach people how to a number of techniques to climb out of that syndrome.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I just want to add to your to your original question there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, choose. So with that said, you know, knowing so much of this, if, if we like, for example, myself, I had a rageaholic dad. Mm. So, I was hardwired for that quick reaction and, and relationship with the masculine was, you know, walking on eggshells. And at any moment, he was unpredictable. And I actually, to your question, do we choose those that, you know, kind of mimic our attachment figures? Mm-hmm. It can go either way. You can, so my first partners early in life were just the opposite. I would choose these dear like sweetheart men. Mm-hmm. And I was so much like, oh, I'm not choosing my father. And I'm, you know, I'm not repeating the cycle. The thing is, they were, that's what's called rebelling against the attachment figure. And you could say, well, that's healthy, secure attachment. In retrospect, though, some, several of these sweetheart men, they were very safe and very healing for me because I didn't have to guard against feeling threatened, Mm -hmm. right, and overwhelmed. At the same time, they were so benign, they were so (laughs) quiet, and the kind of culture I come from, that they couldn't hold kind of the complex, positive, and even, you know, more complex parts of me. And so it was safe, but it wasn't fulfilling. Mm. And then later on. Then she found me. Then, then, no. <laughs> <laughs> way before lion, There was, of course, the one that mimicked that I was so sure wasn't my father because of all these criteria that appeared not to be. But had the hidden temperament of rage when threatened. And uh. then then all of my, that was in my early 30s, my unresolved feelings suppressed in the subconscious closet got started to, the ghosts started to stir. And um, my outrage of being raged at was worked out. You know, The voice I never could say to my father, ah, you're overwhelming me or scaring me. That part of me subconsciously chose this person because I actually needed to find my voice to protect myself and to put up my boundaries in ways I never did. So that's just an example of how we might choose the opposite Mm -hmm. or subconsciously Think we're not choosing the same, but this guy had the same emotional body as my dad, and he had all these other differences. But there was the wound hidden there for me to reconcile. So,
0: mm-hmm. interesting. Another thought that came to me while you you guys were talking is: Are we like if you if you are raised in an uh, maybe with say angry angry parents? Are you does our brain become wired to Like be on the lookout for that all the time.
2: Well, it depends. I mean, it depends if you've, so you might have, like I had a rage at Hulk dad at the same time. I knew he loved me. Mm -hmm. He'd kind of raged at life. Mm -hmm. And I had a mom who was also very strong, had a bit of anger. She really loved me as well. And there was a lot of secure attachment with her mixed with some anxiety because she was unpredictable. So you might have one parent that you bond with or one primary caregiver or even an absent parent, where, you know, there's or an adoptive parent where they, they're an ally and they actually protect you and you get secure love. And the other one is not that impactful. Whereas another one you might bond with where you just you internalize them. It's called the interjected mother, father subconsciously. And you do wire for hyper vigilance, hyper, you know, where it's like just to keep it simple here, lion who's not a rager. When he gets triggered, he's more the insecure avoidant. I'm more the insecure anxious. When triggered, is when we go into okay. the insecure style. Mm-hmm. And he's very quiet with his anger. He he goes kind of underground. I, my inner child, primitive brain, I can start to see his lips get tight and his skin gets a little white. He's mm-hmm. quiet, not like my dad. And my inner child already is going, uh oh, uh oh, am I in trouble? He and I talk about this a lot, and I'm like. I'm already strategizing, this is in the earlier days, not so mm-hmm. much now, to prepare for the fact that I'm in trouble. And I, my brain's making all these interpretations. So that's, yes, to your point, we can be very hyper-sensitive, hyper-vigilant if we've been really traumatized and wired that way to look for it in our partners, our business partners, even our, our children. And we often can make stuff up, and sometimes we're right. It depends what we're seeing, what we're
1: perceiving based on what happened. Mm-hmm. What's really important to note at this point, because it sounds like, oh, my God, really, I have to <laughs> deal with this the rest of my life. We we have found that you can heal these love styles. And yes. we in fact, we call it the healing love style, which is where two people recognize, hey, we've both got patterns, but we're not our patterns and we can change our patterns. And then we teach people, we give people specific instructions on how to rewire The brain, it takes time because these are old patterns, but it can be done and you can get your relationship more and more towards secure attachment. You can feel more and more secure. It can get better and better. You just have to both want to know that
2: you are in insecure behavior and that you actually want to. Rewire. As Lyons said, the neuroscience says the brain has a lot of neuroplasticity. In other words, it can be repatterned. So it's like if, for those who are dating, I say, you know, share this notion of secure attachment. It's out there. It's hip. And make sure they want to be developing a path of you how to rewire into greater and greater secure love, secure attachment. If they're disinterested when you report that you feel insecure or threatened and they don't care about those disclosures, nor do they share their own, then it's going to be much harder to make those changes.
0: Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense. You have to both want to work on this and, and yeah. heal it.
2: Yeah. And, and to that point, Janine, cause I know this show is, is you have a distinction of traumatic attachment for those who have the trauma spectrum, you know, abuse, addiction, just scary parents. Um, and they know, how do you know you might have trauma attachment? You're the one that your reactions are disproportionate to what's really happening a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your partner doesn't text you back and you're fixated on it all night. And they are all day when they're traveling and you're making the worst stories up. And they just happen to fall asleep and they, you know, don't show a history of rejecting you or abandoning you. But you it's like exaggerated. That when you know you have traumatic attachment wiring. Or your partner does. And the other person doesn't. The, one, the other partner might have just, you know, secure attachment with a little bit of insecure when they get triggered. The one who's more secure has to be patient and be willing to use their gift to love, to know it's safe. And to help the one who's feeling traumatic, you know, to help them rewire. It's a lot more work, so to speak, for the one who has trauma because they've got a lot more to dismantle and rewire and learn what love is and be able to report that they're overwhelmed. So we always say, you know, to the it's not always even the work they have to do mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful thing you don't as a if you have a lot of trauma and insecurity, you don't want to choose someone else who has a lot of trauma and insecurity in terms of how they relate. We're talking about relationship style. You okay. and how do you know? I feel threatened most of the time. That's trauma and insecurity. When I tell you uh, your behavior threatens me, you don't care. Okay, sign up for more trauma and insecurity. So if your partner doesn't want to stop threatening you or learn what they're doing to threaten you, then you're setting yourself up for not being able to heal. You can't force someone to want to change their behavior. If they go, "Oh, I had no idea," like when Lion says, "You sound like my critical mother," okay, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm just my true self, Carista. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> it's not going to work." But if right. I go, "Hey," With his other partners didn't have this sensitivity to my tone of voice, but your mom, my voice, when I get escalated, sounds like your critical mother. It's in my best interest to get my needs cared for and heard when I'm in distress. If I don't sound like your critical mother, because you're going to subconsciously shut me out and then I'm going to feel more rejected. So when he says it to me, I have to slow down and change my voice tone and get into my heart or be honest and really care that he's giving me that feedback. That's what we talk about. You rewire incident by incident, teaching each other what feels threatening, what feels safe. It's an open vulnerability. And that takes some practice and some skill set, which is what we've tried to simplify for people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, that sounds like a really good exercise right there. So are there some other things that you can share with people? Because that was that was really good. So if a couple who one person becomes avoid is avoidant or I guess it probably, does it make any difference if you're avoidant or anxious to use that technique you just said? Yeah. Lion will tell you what we do because we have opposite needs.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. So speaking as an, as a recovering avoidant. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I tend to, you know, that, that would be the direction I would go in. I'll have to admit.
2: I'm the recovering anxious. So we have different needs. He'll tell you his first. Okay.
1: Right. So, um, as, a, as a, an avoidant type, as an avoidant uh, historically, uh, anything that was uncomfortable was something to leave. <laughs> yep. And, of course, there's a lot of discomfort in relationships. Run. Right? So, I want to run. <laughs> yes, I did a lot of leaving. Um, and, of course, that triggers Carista's abandonment issue, Mm -hmm. right? And then she gets triggered by my leaving either, and it doesn't have to be physically, I could just leave mentally Mm -hmm. or emotionally. I could withdraw my heart energy, right? Go indifferent, go quiet, go dissociated, look the other way. And these triggers are so um, quick quick and sensitive or subconscious mind that amygdala is always looking for anything that might possibly be a threat. So one person can just look to the side and the other person takes it as a signal that they're about to leave when in fact they were just noticing something out of the corner of their eye or rolling their eyes right mm. Mm. Yeah, well, rolling the eyes is a is a good one because yeah because yeah, you're like, oh yeah right <laughs>
2: that's a pretty clear it's one like, i have
0: not say anything <laughs> even though you rolled
2: your eyes and totally wiped me off the map
0: i can relate <laughs>
1: So one of the things we teach uh, is we call the three nonverbal love languages. And this is really basic rewiring stuff. If you think about an infant, what do they need to feel secure? They need touch. They need to be held. They need care. Mm -hmm. uh, They need to be looked at in the eyes and the mother or father, whoever is caring for them and say, I'm here for you. I've got you. You're going to be okay. This is when the child's distressed. Right. This is what love feels like to the child. Okay. Right. So when the baby's crying. You pick them up. You figure out what's what's needed. You care for them. You reassure them. them with
0: your voice and in the, your
1: eyes. The voice is soft, Touch. soft and sweet. I've got you. It's going to be okay. You don't say, "I've got you." It's going to be okay.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> so right. right. Shut work. up. <laughs> I'm trying to work. Get <laughs> <can't> on <help> yourself. <laughs> so,
1: um, Or the classic one: stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. That's a horrible uh, program. Anyway, so, so if you're with a partner who's suddenly expressing stress because of something that happened, even if you didn't intend it to happen, you looked to the side, they got upset. You come back to these three nonverbal love languages. And the thing you don't do is you tr- you don't go into logic or explanation because you, you wouldn't say to a baby, the reason you're crying is because <laughs> I stuck you with a pin in your left hip. That doesn't work for the baby. So the best thing to do is to walk up and, and grab them and say, it's OK, honey, I've got you. I love you. I'm here for you. And I'm not going away. Mm-hmm. And so when I do that to Karista, she just melts. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's what she was afraid I was going to go away. She was afraid I was going to be angry with her. And so. These three nonverbal love languages can be used in every relationship and they really work to help go start be wired. This the primitive
2: brain. This right. is what the child for right. the first 2 years before words it was the parents tone of voice touch and 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 uh an eye contact that gave the child a sense if it felt secure or dangerous you know the scary parent the alcoholic parent is there you know appearing like a monster and the child puts out a cry of distress and the parents like threatening them further with their scary look and words and body language mm-hmm. so we want to be that safe source mm-hmm. yeah and so he'll he'll give me what i need which is reassurance the anxious needs reassurance i'm not going anywhere now i need to know what he needs it's the opposite When he's triggered, at least we're talking about more in the past. Do you want Mm -hmm. to talk about
1: that? Yes, certainly. So as an avoidant, what I need when I'm triggered is space. Mm. So if I can get Carista to just give me a little space, I can go work it out. I I tell this story for my, my unfortunate first wife who had to deal with me. But when we got into an argument, I would disappear mentally, physically, emotionally for three days. It took me that long to come back into Relationship. Say like, wow. okay, I'm I'm ready to repair. Mm-hmm. N- now we're we're working at five minutes. We're trying to to quickly repair because that's one of the keys is get back to repaired loving space as quickly as possible.
0: Well, I can imagine the longer it goes on, like three days, she's like she's out of there. She's or you know she's feeling like the the, the world is collapsed and yeah. and it's over. Right.
2: Although the traumatized, insecure, traumatized child all the way through adult wiring is used to going for prolonged for a lifetime, Mm. a childhood lifetime of feeling threatened. So they actually can tolerate the distress, unfortunately. Longer because they don't even know what healthy, safe love feels like. This is normal to feel threatened and rejected and abandoned. It's not normal. We're we're here to say Mm -hmm. it's not healthy Mm -hmm. that you're in an aroused state. Your immune system's getting worn down. Your quality of life, everything you're living all day long, is through this kind of aroused. The fire alarms kind of beeping and red in the brain. It's wearing your capacity to focus down. It's not normal to be in a state of constant threat. And that's what many of us didn't know, where it was just part of the experience. You know, edgy walk on eggshells with one or both caregivers or three or four caregivers. If you had step parents or you were adopted or grandparents that took care of you or nannies. And it's like, you know, some were safe, some weren't. And for some, no no one was ever safe. Mm -hmm. So we do go for days, weeks and a lifetime walking on eggshells.
1: And remember that. Uh, We believe we take on love. We believe what love is based on what was happening. So in my history of relationships, I was in a lot of insecure relationships and I was the one causing insecurity half the time and the other person was causing it the other half of the time. Mm. And what I finally figured out is that my relationship with my own mother was insecure. I didn't have her love. She was kind of, you know, out to lunch. She was able to care for us physically, but not really connect to us heart to heart, you know. So I never felt quite loved. So I could be triggered both by a lot of love and also the lack of love or love disappearing. So I was creating that insecurity over and over again because that's what love was. And it took me a while until meeting Carista and studying this stuff that I finally understood, oh, I'm chasing after something that isn't love, but it's familiar. And, of course, the word familiar comes from family.
0: Mm. Oh, I never thought of that. Hmm. So what are, are there some kind of basic things that um, other than you've shared some things with us, but some other things that people can do once they understand what their love style is?
2: Yeah. Well, you can understand what your love style is by taking our free love style right. profile quiz. It will give you a general sense of what you're leaning towards. Mm-hmm. You may be, you know, it's, you're you're looking at when you take the test, you're thinking of one particular relationship. Maybe someone beforehand, uh, you know, you played out your insecure avoidant with your mother who you had that connection with. And the next partner, you're playing out your insecure anxious. So you, some sometimes different partners will... know we'll be playing out mother wound father wound sometimes a hybrid of both Um, so it's to know your own love style your own attachment style there's other other tests on on the internet as well and um, and then if you are in partnership to have your to know what your partner what theirs is because if you you know for example I need when when if we get triggered I'm needing um, reassurance as soon as possible although It's been a long, a long time. Um, You know, I'm needing reassurance. But when I first met Lion over a decade ago, we came together later in life. uh, I needed a lot more. Now there's enough secure attachment that we can go through something and it's not a big deal. But in general, he knows that I want repair as soon as possible. And I know he might need some space. So knowing your partner's uh, love style, especially if it's opposite and knowing what each of those practices would be. So when line takes space, it's like, hey, honey, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be back in 10 minutes. I'm like, great, you're coming back. I have to worry about being abandoned and I'm going to go get myself resourced. You get yourself resourced. What? Why are we taking space to get ourselves back into secure attachment possibility? We come back to reset. So we're always coming back to reset and repair as soon as possible. So I'll take advantage of that space he needs to get myself centered
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he'll come back as soon as he can, because he knows that's what I need. So that mm-hmm. would be an example. Okay. Or if I would go into a trauma reaction, which I am more prone to historically, not so much anymore
1: mm-hmm.
2: in the earlier days, he, I would say, I'm in, you know, I'm in a trance, I'd say, or I'm in trauma spectrum. So to report it, he would know not to push me, you know, don't poke the bear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That matters. I'm reporting that I'm kind of inflamed. I'm in a more primitive place. And if he had the resources and he was more in his secure attachment behavior, you know, he'd be like, do you want to lie down? You know, I'm here, talk about it. And he would kind of reassure that part of me so I wouldn't have to get preoccupied and project all kinds of things. So, that really, really matters to know, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a hybrid historically with all my karma and trauma. I've got, you know, I, I've got all four styles in mm-hmm. terms of in my life experience. Now I'm primarily secure attachment. When highly threatened, highly exhausted, I will go into anxiety over withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And it's just to know that and to know, you know, if it's a colleague, if it's a child, um, when you get triggered, do you go into anxiety and escalate or do you go into avoidance and disappear? Those are the two distinctions when triggered right.
0: fight or flight. So it's kind of like when your resources are low, don't go anywhere. Well, we got to resolve it right now.
2: Reassure me. You're not going to leave me. And the insecure avoidance is like, give me space. You're too much. I'm out of here. I don't even know that, you know, being interdependent is the best thing. And so they are often the hardest when you, you when if you are an insecure avoidant or you're with an insecure avoidant, they're less relational. We call them more non-relational. They haven't learned the benefits of being interdependent with someone because the primary caregivers didn't give them the experience of when I depend on you, it feels good. So now I've learned to be independent and regulate myself and stay away from depending on anyone. So they have to actually learn the benefits of insecure avoidant that being in a relationship, actually interdependent, letting someone hold me Revealing my vulnerability, learning how to share my feelings and needs is going to be a beneficial experience and not a scary experience. So they often need a lot more time mm-hmm. to yeah. develop that pro-relational skill set. The insecure anxious and the secure attachment are more relationally oriented. The insecure anxious, like I need relationship to be their positive connection. So they have much more investment in, in resolving with the person versus alone.
1: Mm
0: mm-hmm. Well, personally, that makes sense because I know what can go through my mind is maybe I should just live you by myself.
1: What else <laughs> people could do to uh-huh. learn about this? And we have a program called Confused About Love. There's ah. a question mark. Confused About Love? We may have the answer. <laughs> uh, and so we have a recorded program that really goes through a lot of these principles and the exercises. Five Keys. Right.
2: It's called Confused <laughs> About Love Five Keys to Secure and Passionate
1: Relationship. Okay. And so there's there's lots of trainings out there. We like ours because we created it. And, uh, well, of course. <laughs> a great way of, of educating yourself and beginning this path. It's a long path to get yourself rewired back to secure attachment, and it's more than worth the effort.
2: Yes, and I think if you are going to post this, I think you said you might post this. Yes. We have a Valentine's special. It's originally
0: $197, and through Valentine's Day, it's $49. dollars uh-huh. Aha. Um, so this will be, yeah, this actually, let me look at my calendar here, but this will be going, up. Oh, just after, cause it'll be going up on the 16th. So perhaps, ah. um, for, for the listeners, maybe for the month of February or something like that.
1: Sure. We can, we can give, you want to just give the code? Yeah. The promo code is capital V mm-hmm. D A Y lowercase V day. Yeah.
0: V day. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I'll. Okay, great. So I'll put that on the website that for the month of November, um, that that code will be...
2: Month of February.
0: I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't believe I just did that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to... For the month of February, uh, the code V-Day will work for a discount for the program. And the sure. name of the program again is... Confused About Love, Five Keys to
2: Secure and Passionate Love. It's on our website at where you take the Love Style Profile Quiz. Okay. Confusedaboutlove.com, dot com, and you'll see under the courses.
1: There's okay. two of them. Okay. Five keys to secure and passionate relationship.
0: Okay, great. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I and it
1: discounts that. it from one ninety seven down to forty nine bucks.
0: Oh wow, that I, <clears throat> I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's five weeks because <laughs> I know I tend to be. Uh, I've I've noticed how I can. I'm generally secure, but when I get triggered or tired um, or exhausted, I can tend to be avoidant. And I just want to go, you know, I just want to run. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. I
2: just add to that distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, so the insecure anxious or the insecure avoidant is primarily when we're triggered in relationship with someone.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm a, I'm an introvert. I can spend all day alone. I work at home. I, you know, with clients and um, when I'm triggered though, with a, an attachment figure in particular, which is the primary partner who mm-hmm. mimics what we did or didn't get in childhood, and where we expect to be loved unconditionally and need to be, that's really when you know your your attachment style is. It it's not so much whether you are kind of introvert. You may you may still have the same place is when you're triggered with someone that's really important to you and you're threatened by their behavior. Do you go into avoidance or anxiety? That's really what defines it from an attachment perspective. What about that for you, Janine? Do you still go into avoidance? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're a tried and true avoidant when you get triggered.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I think so. Um, I'm I'm definitely secure, but I just it's like, oh, it's just it's easier to to avoid than to have to, you know. Kind of spend the energy dealing with it. What have you gotten feedback from
2: partners when you disappear? That they feel, uh, is particularly if they're more uh, attachment oriented. If you have another avoidant, then it's like they like it too. It's like two ships in the night. But have you gotten feedback over time that your disappearance affects
0: them? Not really. Okay. Not really, I just tend to. I just tend to be get. I tend to get quiet, like, like Lion was saying, you know, mentally, you know, I just I get quiet yeah. and instead of talking about it. Um, well, the only,
2: the only place where that could, you know, you might want to consider over time exploring that would be if you're suppressing your feelings and needs, choosing, you know, being conflict avoidant to avoid, you know, the conflict, what happens to those feelings and needs that need to be held and heard and seen, the avoidant often doesn't even realize that they're missing that experience to be held and heard and understood by someone because that's why they're avoidant. No parent really cared for their feelings and needs. so They don't know what they're missing. Does that, is that at all there for you or are you just kind of choose your battles?
0: I think it's more, I choose my battles, but I also, I think there's the, the, the Scorpio secretive nature is <laughs> Kind of gets wound in there too. Sure.
2: I understand. I have a mom is a Scorpio and a daughter is a Scorpio.
0: Oh wow. <laughs> we can be difficult, I know. Uh, just deep. 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 Yeah, deep. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys have certainly given me a lot to think about and I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. So if people are wanting to really delve into this and, you know, do some work. Um if you share again. What you have to offer?
1: Sure, we have first of all the free love style profile, which is a way of finding out what your attachment style is in a kind of very brief way. It takes about five minutes, and then we have a program called Confused About Love: Five Keys to Secure and Passionate Relationship, and uh, that's on our website, ConfusedAboutLove.com. We also do couples counseling and coaching of Couples all over the world, so we're available for that as well.
2: Yeah, we we're, we're in the Bay Area. Uh, work with people in person. Work with people online through Skype or Zoom all over the world who have relationship issues want to heal, heal and work with some of these themes. And we Great. do intensives Great. as well.
0: Oh, what kind? And what are the intensives?
2: Uh, people, they're custom designed. So people want to do a you know deep transformational experience in a short period of time so come in you know if they're local it could be one day if they fly and it's usually two or three days up to five where they we just custom design it to wherever their whatever their outcomes are that they want either solo or couples and crisis couples wanting to go to the next level wanting to heal a lot of trauma and or confusion about what love is and so it's it's designed
1: for their own outcomes mm-hmm.
0: and lion does your belief work um become a part of this?
1: Absolutely. Because our beliefs about relationship and our beliefs about others are fully a third of our universe, maybe more. Mm -hmm. We have beliefs about ourselves, which are important to clear. Beliefs about other people. They're going to be nice to me. They're going to be mean to me. I'll never get what I want. And then we have beliefs about the world. So relationships is, is one of our three universes. And so the Clear Your Beliefs program is really powerful and one of the sections is on beliefs. So that's clearyourbeliefs.com. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. People can work with us. Uh, we, we work alone with a lot of clients. You know, People prefer one of us over the other and then some people like to work with us together.
0: Okay. Great, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been quite enlightening. And um, I think that you know it's, like I said, I think we, you know, we work out so much of our issues on relationships or in relationship that um, you know these are this is really important work
1: well remember that we are troop animals we are relational creatures right so so we're supposed to be with other people because when monkeys get pushed out of the troop they're basically dead meat you know so that's how important relationships are to us as primates
0: Yeah, and I've been looking at the idea of, of community and how how community uh, affects health. Absolutely. Um, you know, whether you feel, if you feel alone and lonely and isolated, it, it can really be a, a, a big factor in health.
1: And there really is an epidemic of loneliness in, in this country, in the United States, and mm-hmm. other places that have westernized. The, the research,
2: just one little gem here. Sure. 2000 studies, 20 years of research shows that we never outgrow the need for secure attachment. And to have at least one go-to person, if it's not a romantic partner, dear dear friend, sister, brother, you know, that we um, we can depend on when we're feeling insecure and they can hold us. That's what love is, that's what secure attachment is, that go-to person that relieves distress and helps us when we're feeling overwhelmed gives us a sense of safety and security so look for who those people are in your life and if your primary partner
0: is threatening and doesn't offer you that then get some help good point wow that's that's an awesome wrap-up thank you guys
1: (laughs) great (laughs) to be with you janine
0: yeah this has been fun thank you so much lion and carista i i really feel like you you've been sharing your authentic self and it's a challenging journey of discovery so thank you you're welcome Great. You guys take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen to or download episodes and click on links to my guest information. Sign up for the podcast bi weekly newsletter to keep up on interesting topics and healthy recipes. And remember, once again, Janine is J A N E A N. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine in iTunes or with your favorite podcast provider. And if you like YouTube, check out the video slideshows of my conversations. Do you know someone who would benefit from my conversation with Carista Luminaire and Lion Goodman? Please share this with your family and friends. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.